Welcome to the Rock Podcast. Paul the Apostle told the Corinthians that the Old Testament narratives were written down for us. In other words, there are spiritual applications for Christians in every incident. Here in 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7, we find a beautiful picture of the gospel emerge out of a very dark and hopeless time for Israel. Let's join Pastor Ross now with a message entitled, Lepers Find Life. Alrighty, let's get started. We're going to pick up where we left off. That's what we do at Calvary Chapels. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, right through. No skipping over passages. Amen? Amen. We left off at the end of chapter 6, and it's going to spill into chapter 7. It's a very intriguing and valuable um, account given us to think about tonight. So let's go to the Lord, ask him for his added blessing. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge your presence here. Jesus said, two or three gathered together in my name. I'm there in the middle of it all. So here you are, the living God in this place, meaning to do business with us, a serious uh, work in our hearts, in our minds, as we... Uh, sit before and, and contemplate the living word of God sent from heaven to change us and to bless us, give us hope, confidence, instruction, and rebuke if necessary. God, have your way. Let the word do its work in our hearts as we yield before you. Amen. The world is a very unstable place right now. Nation rising up against nation, as Jesus said, would happen. And the harsh phrase, war is hell, was coined by a general in the Union Army during the Civil War uh, as he described some of the horrors of what was taking place back in that day during that war, a war that cost um, as many American soldiers' lives uh, as World War One and World War Two combined. I keep forgetting that. It was a bloody, terrible battle. Now, William Sherman, that general I'm speaking about, uh, wrote, you cannot qualify war in harsher terms than I will. War is cruelty, and you cannot refine it. And those who brought war into our country deserve all the curses a people can pour out. And that is along with the famous phrase, uh, war is hell. Now, uh, some of the recent news from the Middle East, um, a new group uh, called the Islamic State or ISIS, um, things going on now with that conflict uh, as they take want to take over Iraq and uh, Syria has really brought about some of the worst atrocities uh, that the world has ever known. Now, if you follow the news, you would know that I, I can't even name the ones I'm thinking about. Uh, it would be too gruesome to speak of. Um, many of those victims are Christians, and many of those victims are children. And tonight, here at the close of 2 Kings chapter 6, uh, spilling over into chapter 7, as I mentioned, is an account of a war that's involving the same area of the world uh, with the same level of unspeakable atrocities as we're about to see. Verse 24. Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, which is Syria, so from now on I'm going to call it Syria, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long 
that a donkey's head sold for uh, two pounds of silver and a quarter of a cab of seeds, uh, seed pods for uh, two ounces. I've done the conversion for you, two ounces of silver. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried to him, help me, my lord, the king. The king replied, if the Lord does not help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor? From the wine press? Then he asked her, what's the matter? She answered, this woman said to me, give up your son so we may eat him today. And tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son so we may eat him, but she had hidden him. Those are things that motivate somebody to coin a phrase, uh, war is hell. And these kinds of atrocities uh, are, uh, have happened in modern day uh, times even. And so, uh, first of all, we see here comes Syria. I have a map just to help us. Now, Syria here back in the day had a lot of territory. All right, so Syria's in the north and Israel's here and they're going to come down as the arch enemy of Israel once again and invade all the way down to Samaria where Israel now has kind of the palace headquarters. It's the new Jerusalem ever since Israel to the north split from Judah in the south and they became two separate nations. And so we're dealing with an invasion to Israel proper, right? Not Judah, but uh, down to where the King Joram has his palace. And so they've come down and they've surrounded this city. And so we can leave that up there just as we talk a little bit about it. So uh, it says in your verse there that sometime later, this king of Syria declares full-scale war on Israel. So he he marshals the entire army. uh, And uh, now there had been a lull in the warfare between the two nations, as you recall, because last time we heard about it, remember uh, the the raiders from Syria came down, right? The Lord and they came to get Elisha, and the Lord blinded their eyes. Elisha led them right to Samaria, into the gated city where they should have been destroyed. But instead of destroying them, they <laughs> they laid a, a luscious feast before them, and fed them and wined and dined them, and sent them back. And it had a big change of heart on the raiders, those who were coming in on the border, but not the king. And so perhaps why the king of Israel has been taken kind of caught off guard is because there was that lull and this understanding that now that we sent them back and we showed the Syrians mercy, uh, wars are going to cease, conflict's going to be over, which it was for a while. But the king has a hard heart, the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad is his name. And so he is going to besiege the city. Now, to besiege the city, Samaria is like a gated community, only it's a, it's a walled city. And walled cities really work to keep the enemy out, but they can work against you too. So what they would do is come down and siege the city. Uh, it would be an embargo of sorts. There would be sanctions. So there's no going in and out. There's no water deliveries, no food, no, no nothing. And they would just starve the city into uh, surrender. And that's exactly what's happening here. And we're told of the horrific consequences of that siege. The walled city of Samaria just became a walled death camp. People wasting away uh, a few months of that kind of thing. And you have just uh, a place of, uh, of real suffering. And so... Um, 
the astronomical prices for things not normally on the menu in a kosher home, all right? So uh, is, is the consequence. So it's saying two pounds of silver for a donkey's head. Now, that's not the choicest part of the animal to eat. And so the point is, is that maybe there's uh, going to be some kind of soup you could make out of that. But if you want to get the donkey's head, you're going to have to come up with a lot of money because they're being starved to death. And then the, the other thing is two ounces of silver for the seeds. Now, I'm just going to tell you, because some of you have it in your versions, uh, that the seeds are really bird droppings, and that is what they were reduced to eating, things that you don't normally eat when you're starving to death. And then, of course, it gets even worse. But the whole point is to paint a picture, really, of the end of the road. No hope in sight that salvation is impossible. And that should sound familiar to you as Christians and our theology about our state before God. Uh, the end of the road, no hope in sight. It's impossible unless there's mercy from God. And so, you know, by the way, Israel was, uh, thank you for the map, by the way. Uh, Israel was forewarned. Israel was told by the Lord. Many times, Deuteronomy 28, in a section, that chapter, by the way, is a list of curses and blessings. He says, if you just obey me, you don't have to be perfect. Just obey me, walk with me. And then he gives a whole list of blessings. And then he says, but if you spurn me, if you reject me, if you disconnect from the source of life, then here's the list that will come your way. And in that list in Deuteronomy 28, it lists this. It says, if you reject me and my covenant, among other things, quote, you'll be besieged by foreign armies, which will starve you out to the point of cannibalism. It's, it's written there. Now, it was all laid out for them. Obey me and enjoy the best or rebel and reap the horrific consequences. But those words just fell on deaf ears. One writer said to scornfully reject the author and source of life, to spurn God is to invite death and all its accompanying horrors. I mean, what else, what else would you expect? What else would, we, would anyone expect if, 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 in fact, there is a God who gives life, and, and you stand before that God and cuss him out, turn your back on him, commit blasphemy, and disconnect yourself from a relationship with the source of life, of everything. The, he who, who spoke and the universe leaps into existence, that one, the one who knit you together and gives source to you, if you stand before that face and make an obscene gesture and turn around, Oh, what, what else? Oh, what else does somebody think would happen if that's how you treat the author of your life and life uh, as a whole? And so those are the kinds of things happening. Well, for me, I just started thinking that Israel was warned in Deuteronomy 25, right? Here's what could happen if you reject me. And, and how about today's generation? It's written pretty clearly. I think everybody knows the gospel's claim that if you reject Christ, what happens to you, right? You know that Bible is translated into uh, so that 5.4 billion people today have it in their language. But it falls on deaf ears. So it didn't matter. It was Deuteronomy 25 said, hey, disconnect from me. And you guys, you get so crazy with starvation that you will lose, you'll become like animals, well, how much more a worse of a horror is prophesied by the Son of God that talks about a place that has unspeakable horrors as well. And everybody knows about it, just like all the Jews knew about the warnings in Deuteronomy 25. Everybody knows the warnings that Jesus said. But it falls on deaf ears. And so the horror described finally pushes the king over the, uh, the king of Israel over the edge. The horror of this conversation with this lady just does it for him. So verses 31 to 33. Uh, 
Well, starting at 30. When the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes. As he went along the wall, the people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. He said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha remains on his shoulders today. Verse 32. Now Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders, the rulers of Israel really, were sitting with him. The king sent a message ahead, but before he arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Don't you see how this murderer is sending someone to cut off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold it shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's footsteps behind him? While he was still talking to them, the messenger came down to him. And the king says, this disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? So let's pause there. Uh, Number one was war is hell. Number two is the king is lost. And if you want to put all caps, I did. L-O-S-T. This guy, he, he's really in darkness. Among other things, he's a hypocrite. Okay? So the tearing of the robes is, is Jewish for, oy vey, I can't take this anymore. Okay, they just take their robes and they just yank them and tear them. And it just means, uh, it really, spiritually speaking, when they did it, they, they were turning to God. I have nobody else I don't want to live anymore. My life is over. And I'm turning to God and I'm, I'm looking to him now. So, um, but for many, it was just a show. It didn't really mean, it, it meant oy vey, but it didn't mean I'm turning to God. All right. And so he tears his, his robe. Now, I've got Joel chapter two for you here, a slide. It says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Now, you know, he just wants to do the outward thing. He wants to kind of, because we find out he's really wants to kill Elisha, God's rep, right? He's got a private war going on with God, right? But he wants to kind of feel better about himself, all right? So he's, he's wearing secretly underneath his robes. He's wearing sackcloth. Sackcloth was burlap. So it, it's kind of rough, and, and it was the clothes for mourning and saying he, it was like doing a spiritual fast, but, uh, but it didn't touch his heart. He was just doing things like he would tear his robe, and then the, the people could see, oh, we didn't know you were mourning. Yeah, you, because he wasn't really mourning. He thought, well, I'll put on the clothes of a mourner. I'll go through the motions of mourning. I'll go through the motions of, go, oh, God, help us. And underneath you can see, oh, yeah, the surface thing. I go to church, I raise my hands, I sing the song. It's a, that can be an expression of what's really going on inside of your heart, but it can also just be surface. I, you know this is true. You can come into church, you can do the whole thing, and never touch the Lord. Never. You can do it. I, no doubt I've done it. In my lifetime... You come in, you just do the thing, but your heart is not, if your heart's not involved and you're just outwardly wearing the right thing, you know, the sackcloth and the tearing and I'm doing the things, but his heart's, is he wants to, he's a murderer. But he thinks if I put on the clothes and go through the motions, everything's going to be cool. Well, the king's waiting for deliverance because he's got the sackcloth on, but God's waiting for a change of heart, not a change of clothing. Going through the motions reminds me of Isaiah 58, verse 4. You're fasting. So going through the motions. The Jews would be fasting, but at the end, they'd get irritated with one another because they're hungry, right? Whatever. (laughs) And they they start beating up each other. So the Lord says, you can't fast like that and expect your voice to be heard with me. All right, so, so just because you fast or you pray or you're a churchgoer or you give or whatever, the heart 
The heart better be involved or it's just a waste of time. And I could go on, you know, one more slide for you. Isaiah 29 and verse 13. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts, it's the heart. It's so, you know, it's so easy to put on the sackcloth. It's so easy to tear the robe. It's so easy to come near with the lips. But when you're living your life and it's Tuesday afternoon and you're being tempted to do something you're not supposed to be doing, that's where we find out what's in your heart, right? And so uh, uh, this dreadful conversation, thank you for that slide, uh, really has... um, brought this desperate situation and all of Israel. And he channels his disgust and his anger uh, not toward his own failed spiritual leadership or his own fault or his own sins and responsibility. I mean, he is the king, supposed to be the spiritual leader, right? Uh, But he channels his anger and frustration at Elisha. Now, the king's true condition of his heart is exposed with an oath. He hears the conversation. He sees the hopelessness. And instead of saying, I caused this, I'm part to blame. He says, I'm going to kill that guy, Elisha. And he takes an oath. You know, be it, uh, you know, may God deal with me ever so severely if by the end of the day, I don't lop that guy's head off of his shoulders. Well, where did he learn to talk like that? His father is Ahab. His mother is Jezebel. They used to say that about Elisha all the time. That's a, in fact, it's a quote from mommy and daddy. Mommy and daddy hated Elijah. And so it got translated over. So by the way, if you happen to have had sinful, abusive parents, we, like King Joram, you have a choice. You either repeat the behavior that you saw or you reject it. You have a choice. So this guy says, hey, I kind of liked it, so I'm going to repeat it. As Christians, we get to choose, and you have the power to break that cycle. So why are you going to hate on Elisha? Why do you want him dead? Well, we find out there's a private war going on. You know, he says this is all God's fault later in the verses there. God is invisible. It's hard to fight with him, but Elisha represents him, talks about him all the time, speaks for him. So, you know, I can't kill God, but I can kill Elisha. So, Elisha and all people who represent God, who's invisible, who can't be killed, are a nice focal point for the hate and the anger and the frustration with their personal relationship with God that they can vent at the one who represents him in physical form. What did Jesus say to us? He told us about this in John 15. He said, the reason they hate you is because they really hate me. Read it, John 15, 18 through 21. He says, stop taking it so personally. This isn't about you. What's the hate about you, right? I mean, why are they hating you? They're hating you because you represent me, and it's me that they don't appreciate so he says, okay, I, you know, he gets upset. He says, I'm going to kill Elisha. Proverbs 19, verse 3. Love it. A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Just blame, or just sinners love to blame their problems on God. Why did God let it happen? How can a loving God? Well, he's doing this, you know, he's like the, the, the progenitor of that very statement. How could a loving God, whatever. Okay, so the order goes out. Soldiers are dispatched to lift Elisha's head off his shoulders. But Elisha's cool as a cucumber. Thank you for that. Uh, God has given him a heads up. There's a pun there, I think. <laughs> Verse 32 Elisha's sitting at home. He knows what's happening. He's kicking back with the uh, elders of the land, maybe giving them some counsel or what have you. Uh, Before the arresting officer arrives, Elisha speaks to the elders and he goes, hey, guys, listen, 
the murderous king. He's up to his old tricks. He sent someone to lop off my head. Uh, So I want you to, to bar the doors there. And by the way, the king is right behind him. So the sword-bearing officer arrives there. Uh, The door is barred until the king comes. He's probably wanting to make sure he does the deed. But some commentators say, now he cries out there at the end there. He says, this disaster is from the Lord. He's at the door. He's with with the guy who's supposed to lop the head off, right? So he's at the door. The door's barred. He can't get in. And he has kind of a mini royal meltdown. And, and he starts, and commentators say, well, there's a hint, a small hint of surrender. And, and uh, he's crying like a little baby, you know, and he's saying, God is against me. There's no hope. You know, he realizes he's fighting a losing battle. And um, there's some brokenness, maybe some softening in this pathetic outburst. But uh, perhaps that's why Elisha's going to let him in. So they open the door. And perhaps that's why Elisha says, Listen, I've got some good news for you. Good news to a guy who's come to kill him. Let's listen, I've got some good news. Chapter 7. Verse 1, Elisha says, Hear the word of the Lord, murderer. (laughs) This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, I convert it for you, five quarts of flour will sell for half an ounce of silver, and ten quarts of barley will sell for the same at the gate of Samaria. Now the officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? You'll see it with your own eyes, answers Elisha, but you will not eat any of it. All right, let's pause there. War is hell, the king is lost, and God is merciful to the undeserving. Now, thankfully, God, uh, God's willing to show mercy even with the lamest attempt to turn to him. And sometimes, as we've been seeing, there's no attempt at all, and he's just merciful. That's the way he is. So God's merciful. The king's despairing. He says, of, in essence, there's no point of holding on any longer. I can't go on waiting. And the prophet says to him, listen, you won't have to. How about, king, if all our problems were solved tomorrow? What if this whole nightmare ends in 24 hours from now? Can you imagine people are starving to death to the point of cannibalizing their own family members? And Elisha's saying, by tomorrow, it's all going to be done, gone. Life will be back to normal in 24 hours. Well, he says, "Hear hear the word of the Lord. Tomorrow the markets will be open." The shelves, the baskets, the carts will be full of produce and the prices back to normal. Well, as usual, there's a skeptic in the crowd, the king's right-hand man. Now, interesting the way he describes that the king is leaning on his arm, right? The attendant. And I read, I looked around for that for a long time. It's mentioned a couple times in the Old Testament. It was a custom of the king to act uh, really cool to say, look, look who, look who I'm leaning on. Look who's taking care of me. So they have this big, strong bodyguard kind of guy, and they lean on him just, just to show, don't mess with me, because one wrong move, and this guy, he'll be turned loose on you. So I, I thought that was interesting, dumb but interesting. Okay, this this guy may be a warrior, uh, El Bodyguardo, uh, next to him, but. Uh, He's a warrior on the outside, but he's a wimp, spiritually speaking, on the inside. So quick to scoff. Here's Elijah. He knows about Elijah. He knows the God of Israel has done many miraculous things. He, he's seen it. But what does he have to do? You can't wait 24 hours before you start scoffing. In 24 hours, you'll be able to say, oh, he said 24 hours. He gave some evidence, he gave some prices, he gave some weights of things. Yeah, you have 24 hours. What do you got to lose before you uh, pass judgment and scoff like that? So he says, in essence, like that's ever going to happen. Even if Noah's flood were to happen again, instead of rain, and God opens the floodgates, the only other time that word floodgates is used is during the flood. 
So even if, if God opened up the skies and down came food, what you're talking about, that couldn't even happen. It's a fairy tale, Elisha. The fairy tale. Elisha says, well, actually, you're going to see it with your own eyes. But unfortunately, you're not going to taste any of it personally. Scoffers who always mock God's precious promises and all the good news because it sounds too good to be true. Eternal life, living forever, reigning and ruling with Christ. Oh, at the last trumpet. Oh, you're all going to be caught up in the sky to meet the Lord in the air. Oh, can I have your car when you're gone? You know, <laughs> mocking. It's the same. There's always a mocker. Because what they do is they doubt God's ability to do what the word of the Lord says he's going to do. So how could that ever happen? Because God isn't that powerful to change things in 24 hours. People are starving, man. There's an army outside right down the road. How's that ever going to happen? And because of unbelief, like every scoffer's story and destiny, is they exclude themselves from benefiting, but they will see it with their own eyes. Just like this guy. This guy represents every scoffer that's ever been born. You will see it, O scoffer, with your own eyes. What did Jesus say? Well, what does Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 say? Look, I see him coming in the clouds. Every eye, every eye shall see him. Listen, even those who pierced him. Even those who did the deed. They've been dead 2,000 years. They're alive because even the ones who pierced him are going to see him at his second coming. They will see. You will see with your very eyes, but you'll not taste of the benefit of the bread the promise, the life. Okay, let's see how we go from starvation to salvation in 24 hours. Big chunk now, all right? Verse three. So there are these four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say, we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we'll die. If we stay here, we'll die. So let's go over to the camp of the Syrians and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. (laughs) Verse 5. Logical lepers. Amen. (laughs) Verse 5. At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Syrians. When they reached the edge of the camp, not a man was there. For the Lord had caused the Syrians to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, The king of Israel has hired out the Hittite and the Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp and entered one of the tents. They ate and drank and carried away silver and gold and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. Nine. Then they said to each other, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, We went into the Syrian camp and not a man was there. Not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys and tents just left as they were. The gatekeeper shouted the news and it was reported within the palace. The king got up in the night and said to the officers, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know we're starving. So they have left the camp to hide in the countryside thinking they'll surely come out and then we will take them alive and get into the city. One of the officers answered, well, have some men take five of the horses that are left in the city. Their plight will be like that of all the Israelites left here. 
Yes, they will only be like all these Israelites who are doomed. So let us send them out to find out what happened. So they selected two chariots with their horses and the king sent them after the Syrian army. He commanded the drivers, go and find out what has happened. All right, let's pause there. Number four. Okay, so we got war is hell. The king is lost. God is merciful. And four, saved people are responsible with the information of where to find the bread. It all begins with four unlikely heroes, lepers. Their situation was way worse than people inside the city, right? Because they're, they're outside the city. They lived at the gate. Food from friends and loved ones would be put in pails and, and put over the wall for them. But as they're starving to death, there's no more surplus. So they're really in uh, bad shape. And so they're, like I said, logical lepers. They're like, what do we have to lose? If we stay here, we die. If we go there, they may kill us. And that'd be like kind of a merciful thing. You know, it's, it, it would be nicer to die with a sword thrust than to waste away. So, you know, let's take a chance. So the sun sets and off they go. They slip away to the Syrian camp. And they see a strange sight as they round the corner. It's deserted. Now, how did it get deserted? Well, the writer of Second Kings tells you. You think Hollywood has quality sound effects? <laughs> the Lord knows what he's doing. So he, this is a familiar uh, thing with the Lord. Uh, he likes to throw the enemy into confusion and panic. Uh, I have written down here, audio hallucinations were sent, all right? So he, he tells Gabriel, the Lord says, Gabriel, I want you to play the theme song of Chariots of Fire, all right? <laughs> and, and the Syrians conclude, the Jews have hired out the Egyptians, we're goners. Okay, so verse 7, uh, it's every Syrian for himself. They run for their lives and they leave everything as is because they think they're about to die. So imagine the leper's surprise and joy when they come upon, I mean, they're starving. They're starving to death and they come across so much food, so much money, everything you possibly could want, right? And these Syrians came down for the long haul. They're besieging the place. They're starving them to death. They have provision for a month or two or more. It's all there. And these starving men have found it. Well, quite a scene. You know what it reminded me of? I just pictured them going crazy in there, you know, kind of not a real pretty sight, you know, but I could imagine, you know, like Survivor. You know the show Survivor? I like the show. And so... The show Survivor, when they are very hungry after weeks of no food, oftentimes they'll win a reward and they'll win like a barbecue dinner with everything. And then these people, and you could kind of see their ribs, some of them, you know, they're hungry, hungry. And he takes off the thing and he shows them barbecued ribs and he shows them chocolate chip cookies and tall glass of milk. And they just do this dance and they're, they're doing this happy thing when just tasting everything and loving it. Uh, just, to, just uh, you know, when you're hungry, everything tastes good. Not a donkey's head. But <laughs> so quite a scene. But their sin nature kicks in and it doesn't take long for the unholy trinity to kick in. Me, myself, and I. And uh, they're seen going from tent to tent shoving things in their little robes and collecting all the valuables and hiding them and like greedy little looters. In verse 9, their consciences are pricked. And I wonder who, who, who stopped. There's one. One person stopped. Got to look at the other guy across just like an animal eating and hiding and hiding and running and frothing at the mouth and eyes ablaze, you know. And one guy goes, oh, looks up and says, this is, this is sick. This is wrong. What are we, a bunch of animals? 
This is a happy day. Look what we've found. God has delivered the whole city. There's a city of dying people. How could we keep this to ourselves? It's a good question, huh? So their consciences are pricked, and they decide this isn't right. And then they're, they're pretty logical. They're smart guys. They say, you know what? Uh, daylight's going to come, and someone's going to figure this out. And punishment's going to happen. They're not going to be very happy with us. Uh, and it also means that God probably is watching, and they feel a sense of uh, obligation to him. So they beeline it back to the city gate while it's still dark, all right? So they haven't woken up yet. It's been not yet 24 hours, as the word of the Lord said. So it's the middle of the night. They go to the gatekeeper. The gatekeeper believes them. Hey, wait, wait, wait. they're gone. There's food there. And they start sounding the alarm. Well, it gets to the palace. And very interesting there in verse 12, a response from our king, Joram, who was present right there when Elisha said, in 24 hours, everything's going to change. We're going to have food at affordable prices. He was right there. You would think he went to bed with something. A spark of something. And then when he hears people screaming that they're gone and that there could be food available, you, could, you would think he could say, hey, maybe, maybe this is the Lord. No, of course not. What does he say? It's a trick. They're going to kill us. They're luring us out. What about a few hours before when the, Lord of the, when the word of the Lord came through his prophet and said, this is going to happen, and it's happening before your very eyes, and still you're hard-hearted. If only I saw a miracle, then I'd believe. Liar. That's a, that is a lie, because it's happening right before his very hearing, at least, and he doesn't uh, believe. And so he says, nope, it's a trick. But his advisors are pretty smart, and they say, why don't you send out a couple teams Spies. And I love what he says. Listen, we're dead men here if they stay. And we have nothing to lose. Like the lepers, same attitude. Send a couple guys out there. They may lose their lives, but they're going to lose their lives here anyway. Might as well see, find out if there's a really hope. Let's finish up. So he tells the soldiers, go. Verse 15. So they follow them, the army, the trail, 25 miles as far as the Jordan River. And they found the whole road strewn with the clothing and the equipment the uh, Syrians had thrown away in their headlong flight. So the messengers returned and reported to the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a five quart quarts of flour sold for a half ounce of silver and ten quarts of barley sold for the same, as the Lord had said. Now the king had put the officer on whose arm he leaned in charge of the gate, and the people trampled him in the gateway, and he died just as the man of God had foretold when the king came uh, down to his house. Now it happened as the man of God had said to the king, about this time tomorrow, five quarts of flour will sell for a half ounce of silver and 10 quarts of barley for uh, the same. Verse 19, the officer had said to the man of God, look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this really happen? Uh, the man of God had replied, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of it. And that is exactly what happened to him. For the people trampled him in the gateway and he died. There's a reason it's repeated word for word over and over because the spiritual application for us today is that the, the word of the Lord will come to pass. And there are two destinies there are destinies of people who believe and find the bread of life. And there are destinies of those who mock and disbelieve who will be trampled over and not find life. That's the spiritual 
application. So the scouting party returns and says, it's true, boss, not a Syrian soul in sight. A lot of S's in that sentence, by the way. The countryside is strewn with equipment and clothes and food and treasures. Man, it looks like they had seen a ghost. So time for God's word to be fulfilled. Verse 1 tells you what he said. Verse 16 says, it happened that way. Verse 18 says, if you missed it, I'm going to repeat it again. And then, wait, there's more. The unbeliever who mocks, verse 2, it tells you how it happened. Verse 17, the mocker sees it but dies. Verses 19 through 20, the whole incident's repeated again. Word for word, point for point. And the last thought, just driving it home, and that is exactly what happened, just as the word of the Lord promised. Spiritual application, there's two. So one I've already talked about. Every verse of prophecy will come to pass and it will happen exactly as it's predicted. And this is the picture of two destinies, the story of salvation from Genesis to Revelation. For God so loves the world that he gave his only, gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The two destinies, that's the one story. And it's lived out here as it is oftentimes in the Old Testament. So what did Jesus say? Well, he said, wars and rumors of wars. This is prophecy. A rise in cruelty in that warfare. An increase in na- na- natural disasters. Uh, an increase in immorality. Falling away from the faith. Massive spiritual deception. Israel surrounded and threatened from all sides. The gospel will be preached to the whole world, and then the end will come. He said, about that day and that hour, listen, it will happen just like the days of Noah. People will be going about their lives, doing their business. They'll be eating and drinking, marrying and getting engaged. And then it'll happen, just like the flood came and swept them all away. So he says, about that day and hour, know this. Nobody knows. It'll be sudden and unexpected. And then he says, one will be taken and one will be left. And then Paul says, he says, two people will be in a kitchen, two women grinding a hand mill. One will go, one will stay. He says, two guys will be working in a field. One goes, one stays. In the days of Noah, no one expects it. Boom. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, according to the Lord's own words, talking about that verse, that we who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord shall be caught up. Paul isn't coming up with something new. He says in that verse, according to to the Lord's own words, we who are alive and remain at the time of his coming shall be caught up, just like he said, two in a field, one goes, one's caught up, one stays, you see. So then you have your mockers. So two destinies about the word of the Lord. Those who believe will be caught up. Those who mock and scoff, second Peter chapter 3, scoffers who say, where is this sign of his coming? Verse 9, 2 Peter chapter 3. Scoffers, they shall see it with their eyes, but they will be left behind and trampled by the forces of the Antichrist. That's the world. When we're gone, They remain, and they're going to have to duke it out for their lives. It's possible God will give roll call a second time, and there will be a second chance there. The last point I wanted to just bring out is this beautiful picture of these two destinies, but they have to be told. They have to be told. They have to be given information. Romans chapter 10, 
Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then can they call on the one they haven't believed in? How, and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? This Old Testament narrative is screaming Romans chapter 10, 13 through 14. Leprosy, sinners. Sinners who through, listen, death all around them, darkness, helpless, wander in by God's mercy and find through no merit of their own, find food and life and money and silver and gold. But the city that they're from and surrounded by, they're all goners. They're all dying. They need the information. And they're tempted. They're tempted to say, you know what? It's, it's easier for us just to enjoy this information, especially when you tell people where to find the bread of life, and they're, they're defensive about it. And they want to persecute you for telling them that. So you're tempted to be like the lepers who say, you know what? This is good. I'm just going to take what I need. I'm, I'm safe. My family's safe. And I'm not going to tell anybody. Those lepers said, oh, this isn't right. We have a moral obligation to share where the bread is. Jesus said, if anybody eats the bread that I give, even if he dies, he shall live forever. We know where to get the bread. We were the lepers. We got cured. We still have a little bit of that left in us until that great day when we're changed. And by the way, in 1 Corinthians 15, speaking on the rapture, Paul says, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We shall not all die, but we shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. Yet another verse about the rapture. At that moment, you're changed. No more leprosy in there, (laughs) right? But until then, we struggle with just hoarding it to ourselves. But this story is, is in there. And it's screaming to us the prophetic picture of our moral obligation to go back into the city where there are dying people and tell them, hey, I know where you can find some bread. (laughs) I know of a bread that really satisfies and gives eternal life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this wonderful account, Lord, that just speaks to us in this very moment of our time. Today, the truth all around us. Help us to take these valuable insights and apply them so that we can effectively, productively serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.